The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Well, thank you for that generous set of introductions, and uh, it's really wonderful to be here among so many friends. President Carter is very much on our minds. He's a remarkable man, as we all know, and I think he's showing his remarkable character by plowing on with all his commitments uh, under the current uh, uh, challenges that he's facing. President Carter changed Mike Oxenberg's life, but he not only changed Mike Oxenberg's life, he changed the life of all of us who have been sort of tilling the garden of U.S.-China relations uh, since then. I remember a dinner with President Carter uh, in which he recounted, as he did in his uh, memoir, Keeping Faith, He traced his commitment to U.S.-China relations to his childhood and to a rural church in Georgia where every Sunday he put in a nickel, which was not a trivial amount when he was growing up, uh, for donations around the world, including not least to China. He also encountered China in 1949 as a naval officer when he came in to Qingdao Harbor. And I remember talking to him about what a deep impression that made. You know, we often think presidents are moved by, by big events and great strategic ideas, and certainly the Soviet Union figured into President Carter. But I came to the conclusion after listening to him that what really motivated him is the impressions he had about the Chinese people from the 1940s. And that was really the motivation, and the, I would put it this way, the Soviet Union was the excuse. But certainly I don't think that was the motivation. I think there's a lesson in President Carter's personal story that the human links and commitments forged in earlier periods provide foundations for understanding and cooperation decades later. These human connections help us through the ups and downs of relations. And when we finally had a chance to reconnect to the Chinese people in the 1970s, It was the people that were in the United States and China in the 1940s and 30s that provided the human hardware, really, and human software to accomplish that. An example is the fact that Shanghai was the boyhood home of Dok Barnett. Shanghai was in his blood. In the fall of 1989, Dok and I came to Shanghai at the lowest post-normalization ebb in Sino-American relations. Our purpose was to recommend to the National Committee and others how the U.S. and China could advance their relations in troubled times. Doak and I met with then-Mayor Zhu Rongji in the dimly lit upstairs meeting room at the venerable Hongshan Hotel. That trip was the first step in realizing Mayor Zhurong Ji's and Mayor Wang Daohan's visit to the United States with fellow mayors the following year. That trip was significant as a milestone in the recovery of bilateral ties. Doak was the perfect man for that mission. It was so natural for him to talk to Chinese counterparts as a neighbor as a friend, as a former resident. He wasn't an outsider. 
Things like that matter in international relations. Today's memorial lecture also has special meaning to me because I owe my entry into the China field to two teachers, one of whom is honored in the name of this lecture series, Michael Oxenberg, Mike. In many ways that they do not often realize, teachers shape the lives of young people. Miss Turner, a teacher at Palo Alto High School, turned my mind toward Asia in the mid-1960s, even before I went to Stanford. It was because of Miss Turner that my mind ignited when Mike Oxenberg suggested to me one day that I might pursue a life in China studies. In fact, I think I staggered Mike. He said, well, I think you ought to go into China studies. And I said, okay. That was a pretty spontaneous career decision with a minimal of thought, but it was really a suggestion that just needed to be uncovered was deep in my mind. Mike and I were very good friends thereafter. By this point, it ought to be clear to all of you why I'm so pleased and honored to be here. Now I want to turn to the substance of U.S.-China relations. What's the current situation? What are our tasks? This is the discussion that Doak and Mike would have liked to hear. In January 1980, Deng Xiaoping prefaced remarks to the Central Committee cadres in a straightforward and modest spirit that I will try to emulate here. Deng said, quote, At present, there are some problems within the party and among the people which call for solution. Of course, it is impossible for me, meaning Deng Xiaoping, to cover them all in my speech today, and the comments I'm going to make on some of them may not be adequate. But since you asked me to speak, I will speak. These are troubled times requiring both realistic thought and an empathetic spirit. What attitudes and perspectives should both America and China bring to productively managing our relationship? Of course, translating general guidelines into concrete actions is not easy in either of our nations. But if public and private leaders in both our countries fail to manage Sino-American relationships well, history will be unforgiving to those who fail. Americans and Chinese must jointly navigate the treacherous waters of a world that has become very different from the post-World War II era. The word superpower, for example, misdirects us in a world of interdependence and diffusing power. The harsh fact of our relationship is that the strategic direction of U.S.-China relations is not healthy, despite recent positive and important developments. Among the welcome events, one must count President Xi Jinping's September journey to the United States and this month's historic meeting in Singapore between Mr. Xi and Mr. Ma. One also should include among the progress climate change cooperation, 
military-to-military -military exchanges, the development and use of crisis management mechanisms, guidelines for air and sea encounters, further progress in bilateral economic relations and tenuous movement forward in cyberspace. Also encouraging is mounting Chinese investment in the United States, creating 80,000 American jobs in China-affiliated enterprises and literally hundreds of thousands of Chinese students contributing to and taking advantage of American education and research. Not to be overlooked are current cooperative plans to greatly increase the number of American students learning Chinese language. Strategically important cooperation has occurred with respect to Iran, anti-piracy initiatives, and fighting Ebola in Africa. In short, there are things to celebrate. These things, these examples, highlight the potential of a more fully cooperative Sino-American relationship. But, Underneath these welcome developments is a deepening, mutual, strategic suspicion. The center of gravity of elite discussion in both capitals has shifted from a vocabulary of partnership and strategic cooperation, migrating through a sort of hedging phase, to what now is becoming a deterrence vocabulary. Fundamental to a deterrence vocabulary is threat, establishing credibility, and the urge to see big problems at stake in small matters. Consider the South China Sea in recent months. In the pursuit of deterrence, we see progressively tougher talk and action in both countries. America and China solidify outposts in the region whether through alliance strengthening, land reclamation, long-term agreements, and base enlargement. In terms of big power ties, Beijing and Washington each are drawing closer to third parties, hoping to restrain one another through triangulating, balancing arrangements. Washington and Tokyo draw closer as do Beijing and Moscow. Both of our militaries are developing new weapon systems, in part aimed at each other. In another vein, consider that meaningful space cooperation with the Soviet Union was possible under American law at the depths of the Cold War. This is not so with China today. A few years ago, I had the privilege of meeting China's first person in space, Yang Liwei. And I recall thinking at the time how much better off we all would be if space were a zone of Sino-American cooperation. Uh, parenthetically, uh, in a little a lighter vein, I recommend that you see two recent uh, movies, uh, that uh, the storylines of which are that the Chinese space program provides needed assistance to American astronauts in difficulty. Uh, one film is The Martian, and the other is Gravity. But alas, my dream only seems to be true in Hollywood. Outside the movie theaters, we're in a downward strategic drift that demands our reflection and our action. It was security that brought Nixon and Mao 
and Carter and Dung together. We now find security becoming a net negative in the relationship. This creates the obvious danger of militarization, which brings with it all the attendant risks of miscalculation, escalation, and preemption. If unchecked, such strategic deterioration will, in fact, our bilateral economic, cultural, and diplomatic facets of the relationship that have been such a boon to everyone. So, what should we do to stop the slide? Three perspectives may offer guidance on managing this relationship. These perspectives can be viewed as my initial attempt to respond to President Xi Jinping's call at a recent meeting with Henry Kissinger, in which China's president, Xi, said, quote, the two countries should have a correct understanding of each other's strategic intentions and strengthen pragmatic cooperation at all levels to expand common interests by thinking in an innovative way. And I agree with President Xi. So let me offer three perspectives about how we might manage things a little more productively. And when I say we, I don't mean just the Americans or just the Chinese. I mean we, both of us. This, it takes two hands to clap. Perspective one, international power relationships are changing with the rise of China and others. This does not mean that America is becoming absolutely poorer or weaker or that the Chinese people have achieved their per capita welfare level that they deserve or desire. But changes in relative power do have consequences. These changes mean that the quest for primacy by the previously dominant power, the United States, will become progressively more difficult and progressively less tolerable to the ascending power. Changing power relationships require each party to perform an essential task if stability is to be preserved. The previously dominant power, in this case the United States, must make room for the rising power, China, in the established global and regional institutions. In the World Bank and the UN system, I think the United States has done a pretty good job. Uh, we've made room. In the International Monetary Fund, there's work to be done, but I think the U.S. is headed in the right direction. And in the imbroglio over the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, I'm afraid to say we were given a textbook example in how not to do things. For its part, China has to be patient. It has to keep its frustrations born of its painful past in check so that the international system can gradually adapt to a stronger China. Neither Beijing nor Washington should have as its first recourse building separate trade, economic, and security institutions. The gradual increase in the international role of the renminbi, the Chinese dollar, approximates the progressive adaptation and patience that I have, been, I have in mind. The U.S. is, I think, welcoming the gradually greater role of the RMB, and China, I think, is being patient and gradually moving towards that. I think that's a model for lots of other areas. 
Perspective two, successful political leaders must maintain balance between their international entanglements and available resources and simultaneously maintain balance among essential external commitments and domestic needs. This means setting priorities. I'm afraid to say that currently neither Beijing nor Washington, in my view, is doing a good job in this respect. The United States in recent months has declared the Islamic State and al-Qaeda to be immediate, severe, non-state threats. Russia to be a very significant big power threat and China to be a longer-term dynamic challenge to elements of the world and regional orders. We won't even mention the problems the United States confronts in the Middle East, the Central and South Asia, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. Thus far, Washington seems averse to, polarize, uh, to prioritizing these challenges. I believe, as then U.S. Ambassador to the PRC Sandy Rant put it to SICE students in 2002, shortly after 9, or 2001 after 9-11, Ambassador Rant said, we've seen the enemy, and it's not China. Well, I think that phrase fits pretty well in the wake of what we've seen going on lately. For China, without effective efforts to reassure its neighbors, its rapid moves towards more involvement in the region and the world, acquisition of impressive military cap capabilities and expenditure of greater energy in asserting its sovereignty, Beijing runs the risk of creating counter-coalitions and fueling a regional arms race. Beijing's posture may prove premature. History may assess this to have been an impatient move away from the priority attached to internal development. Time will tell, but I don't believe that either country now has a feasible set of strategic priorities. Perspective three, in the early 1970s, the new U.S.-China relations started as a concept shared between strategically minded elites in both of our countries. Nixon, Mao, Kissinger, and Joe, and Carter, Dung, and Brzezinski. Thereafter, it evolved into a set of intergovernmental linkages and dialogues currently embracing 90-plus agency-to-agency dialogues, as well as extensive relations among subnational units, provinces, states, municipalities in both our countries. Beyond those ties... There are now uncountable corporate NGO linkages binding our two societies together. Today, the U.S.-China relationship is a society-to-society -society relationship. The corporate, local, NGO, and individual levels are where cooperative and win-win impulses find their fullest expression. Ties at these levels must be strengthened and nurtured. In the late 1970s, I was a young assistant professor at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. There I saw how a popular governor, a man named James A. Rhodes, he was the most popular governor in 20th century Ohio, 
and he forged a powerful and broad-ranging connection between the state of Ohio and Hubei province, who was then led by a very well-known Chinese political leader, Chun Pishen, at the time. Uh, in any case, this relationship fostered trade and the deepest Sino-American social science and humanities, humanities academic exchange of that era. Similarly, 30 years ago, my own school, Johns Hopkins, entered into a partnership with Nanjing University and built a new type of educational partnership to train future leaders for U.S.-China relations. Ken Jarrett is one of our esteemed graduates from this program, one of 3,000 alumni in China and the United States. If you look at a sim another field, look at agriculture. The governor of Iowa, a man named Terry Branstad, heard him speak not long ago, and he said, one out of every four rows of soybeans planted in Iowa is shipped to China. So wherever you look, we are deeply uh, intertwined. Put differently, I did a calculation. I did a little research for this talk. And I calculated roughly how many presidential electoral votes are in, in states in the United States that have a billion dollars or more of Chinese investment and uh, hire over a thousand or more American workers in Chinese-owned and affiliated facilities. And the answer of that research is that there are 15 states in the United States, and they have 242 electoral votes out of 538 total, and it takes about 200, it takes exactly 270 to elect a president of the United States. By the way, these, these states have 30 senators, which alone is sufficient to influence any important legislation working through Congress. My point is not that Chinese investment can determine American elections. It's not that our senators will become mere vessels of Chinese capital and economic interest. But my point is that the reach of U.S.-China relations at the local level in employment growth in the United States is very important. And this isn't even to mention agriculture and farm states and China being the biggest export market for many of our states between the Rocky Mountains and the Appalachian. These realities likely will shape the larger relationship in ways similar to those we saw with Japan when it invested in the auto industry in Ohio in the 1980s. Similarly, mounting investment in employment generating uh, enterprises in the United States by China, uh, or, or, or by the Americans in China, will have, I believe, similar effects. When we're employing each other's people, we're going to have an interest in getting along. Uh, it won't be alone enough to stabilize the relationship, but it will be a big pillar of that relationship. This society-to-society relationship is why I believe that it is imperative that Beijing draw up needed rules to govern its own social organizations and foreign NGOs, and that great care be taken not to damage these organizations. Both China and America need to be bold where our interests converge. 
Let's exert ourselves to build a future in which China is in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, where the U.S. actively cooperates with the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, and where together we build infrastructure and foster positive development around the world. By way of conclusion, today's U.S.-China relationship is the handiwork of many people in both of our countries over the last 45 and more years. As the Chinese Cheng Yu enjoys, though, uh, enjoins, quote, those who drink the water should remember those who dug the well. Ying Shui Su Yat. History often speaks in terms of elites and national leaders, and they are important. But also essential is the vision of local leaders, our private and non-state leaders, our citizens. Doak Barnett and Mike Oxenberg are emblematic of this essential part of the American picture, as are others running the gamut from Yo-Yo Ma to Bill and Melinda Gates to Milton Friedman, who famously visited China in the 1980s, and on to the thousands of American students who have now come to China to learn and to understand and shape a better future for us all. I wish to acknowledge the critical role of Chinese individuals and officials. I first landed here in Shanghai at a modest Hongqiao airport in the third week of October 1976. I believe it was the first American delegation to come in after Chairman Mao's death. From the moment I landed in this city, jubilant at the fall of the Gang of Four, I saw the lights of China come back on, the lights in people's faces, the lights in universities and academies, and the heat and light of Chinese entrepreneurship. The neon lights that now bedazzle were reinstalled after many years of being dark. During the nearly four decades following those heady days, mayors and party secretaries of Shanghai, such as Wang Daohan, Zhang Zemin, Zhu Rongji, Xu Kuangdi, and many others I knew less well, they turned on those lights ever brighter, and not only for this city, but for China and the world as a whole. They were joined in this effort by bold thinkers like Madame Xie Xidu at Fudan University, and I remember Zhao Qi Zheng as well. Today's question is whether or not we will preserve and enhance the legacy of these Chinese and Americans. Building constructively on their positive legacy must be our task. This is a task about which we should be strategically optimistic. I was quite struck looking at recent comparative polls by the Pew Organization, and what it showed is the optimism and positive assessment of young people in both of our societies is greater than the older people. So we have something to build on, and I'll close by quoting Mao that I think captures this idea. He put it poetically in the 1960s. Quote, young people beat the old. In the Yangtze River, the rear waves push those in front. The world, in the world, new people chase after the old. Thank you very much. <laughs>